guys, welcome back. This is Anchors, Freaks, and Dreams podcast. I'm your host, Matt Perdue. Again, for all those who have not listened to any of the previous podcasts, Anchors, Freaks, and Dreams is all about making a change in life, making a big change. You know, something that requires a lifestyle change. Um, most of it's going to center around health and fitness, some nutrition, because that's that's my world. It's been my world for years. But it's also going to apply to any anything in life that you want to change. It's going to require a lot from you. And um, the anchors, again, is our stabilizers, the thing that keeps, keeps us from getting tossed about a lot of the structure. Freaks is all about the motivation in our life, the compelling things, the things that um, are emotional and intense that draw us towards something. And dreams is all about the meta narrative of life, things that are bigger than ourselves, kind of like the meaning and the purpose of life. And what I want to do today is kind of break down dreams. I've done a breakdown of anchors and freaks uh, specifically, but today I just want to really go over dreams and what I mean by it. To start with, it's dream. I I I pick dreams instead of like meaning or purpose um, or big picture, because the thing about dreams is that we're whether it's a daytime or we're in our sleep dreams, we're just a participant. That we're not really in control of them. We play along, you know. Possibly, if it's a lucid dream, we have some control over what um, we do or we say. But within the dream, we have chronic intention to do and to feel and make something happen. But we're a, more of an observer than we are uh, um, somebody who is the, say, you know, the protagonist or the the, the writer, the scripter. And um, what I want to use as an example of dreams in this is that the movie Braveheart's one of my favorite movies, and. The way the, the the plot breaks down is that William Wallace is uh, this kid in Scotland, and this is, I think, in the 15th, 16th century. And Scotland is, you know, part of Great Britain. It's the upper part of the island of Great Britain. And England is the, the lower part. And England was the, the empire. And they had subjugated Scotland, but Scotland wasn't actually England, and Great Britain hadn't been, you know, developed yet. And uh, uh, William Wallace's dad was killed in an altercation with uh, English soldiers. And so he had to go off and leave. I think he left. I think he went to France, maybe. I don't really know. But uh, with his uncle and he was raised. Well, as an adult, he comes back and he wants to live in, you know, where he where he was born. And all William Wallace wants is to live a quiet and peaceful life. He doesn't want it to have any issues with anybody. And so when he starts getting recruited to go out and join the militia, he's like, no, stay away from me. I know what that leaves behind and it's just death. And I grew up without a dad, so I want to stay away from it. And fair enough, he does. Well, they have this thing going on where they call it Prima Nocta and the long shanks, the, the, uh, the, the King of England he says, you know, we can't control these Scots, but what we'll do is we'll have every, you know, whenever a woman gets married, then they will give f- the first night of the marriage with the English noble. 
which sounds crazy today, right? But that was the way that these these Scottish maidens would end up having children, and either they wouldn't know for sure if it was you know half English, or they would know that it was a they had a British kid. Um, but the mother would still love it and raise it. And what you would have is you'd have a bunch of children that were scattered throughout the countryside that were half English. And then they wouldn't want to go to war against, you know, their dad or if you will. So that was the concept. Well, William Wallace, he marries this one gal in secret because he doesn't want to share her with the English noble. So I don't know. Obviously, they thought that forward that they would be able to stay in Scotland because once they found out they were married, then they maybe they would put him in prison. I'm not sure. But um, he she gets attacked by some. English soldiers and they're like trying to, I don't know if they're, they're trying to rape her or they're just attacked her, but William Wallace comes in, saves her and kicks her butt. Right. And then he runs off and says, Hey, meet me at our secret place. And I think they were just going to run off together and live in hiding, if you will. Well, they catch the girl and they kill her and they do it, you know, to draw him, William Wallace back so they can catch him and kill him. Well, he sure enough comes back when he finds out looking for revenge, but they, they can't catch him. He starts, you know, kicking their booty. And then the whole town rises up in rebellion and they kill the magistrates and they burn down the fort. And it just starts this kind of rebellion that spreads throughout the countryside of Scotland. Well, now you have this William Wallace who just wants to be, you know, self absorbed, if you will, in his own little world and be at peace and not cause conflict. Well, now he's just, you know, he's just angry and he's vengeful and it kind of falls, starts to look like it's fallen into the plot of a normal, just revenge movie that, you know, it's a guy's movie. Right. And, um, the, you know, the guys that the Mr. Big attacks the family and kills somebody and he spends the whole time getting revenge and he ends up taking out the boss at the end, you know, like a video game almost. And, but this one is, is playing out like that. But what you see happen is, as the as the story progresses, William Wallace turns into this mythical figure within Scotland, and they say he's he's this uh, you know Superman almost, and and he's not. He's just he's just angry, and so he's pulling off all these wars and battles, and you know taking out these English soldiers and these forts, and he's doing it almost starting with it as a revenge for his wife, you know, getting killed. And then it turns into like vengeance for Scotland, the oppression of, of England. And what's interesting about this though, is that he's getting pulled into the meta narrative. He's focused on one thing, but he is being pulled along. And so by the end of the movie, he's actually all about, freedom for Scotland. It's not just vengeance against England. It's freedom for Scotland. And that's his meta narrative. That's his dream. And he ends up giving his life for this freedom. And this to me is a perfect representation of how dreams affect our lives. And the, the interesting thing about it is, is that we don't choose our dreams. They choose us. The, but how this works, like you would say, hey, well, man, then why does it even matter? Just have anchors and freaks. Well, okay, fair enough. We can't necessarily choose our dreams, but we'll talk about how they affect 
what we end up doing, you know, perpetually in our lives and whether or not this goal that you might have is actually a goal that you need to pursue. Okay, so let me take a step back and we'll look at this, the science. This is um, what they've, we studied in the lab about the human behavior. So um, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, they were doing all these studies on rats and just, you know, exposing them, doing procedures on them. Um, a lot of drug work. They would try to get these rats addicted to drugs so they could figure out why humans acted the way they did. And so I'll, I'll try to make this short, but it, it's, it's, it's really interesting um, what they ended up doing. But one of the things is, is that they would attach uh, or, okay, they would give water. Let's say they put a rat in a cage and they would give the opportunity for the, the, the rat to drink from water or this heroin or cocaine in, infused water. And then, you know, it seems pretty clear that the rat would always choose the drug water. In fact, what they would do is, is that um, the, the rats would starve if they had to, to choose between food and water and drug water. They would just keep drinking the drug water. And they had this little contraption. I remember watching something in psychology class in college that they would screw this little thing, these little electrodes up to their head. And if the, the pigeon or the rat hit a lever, then they would get this little hit that would cause their brain to release dopamine. And that's similar to what uh, heroin and meth and all these other, you know, stimulant type of drugs do. And what they found was, is that the invariably always the animal would end up hitting this lever like it was a piano key until they died. They would just keep hitting it. They wouldn't do anything else until they expired. And they even did, I remember watching this one where they put this rat in a cage and half the, the cage was normal and the other half, the floor was electrified. So if the rat walked over there, it'd get pop, you know, it was huge shock. And, you know, it would, you'd see the rat jump up in the air and it would run over to the non-electrified side. Well, obviously after one or two shocks, maybe even just one, the rat's not going to go over to the electrified side. Well, what they did is they just remo- they would not feed the rat unless they put it on the, the shock side. Well, it would take one shock and it would just re-verify to the rat that it's going to get shocked if it walks over there and, and the rat would die. It wouldn't go over and eat. Well, these addicted rats, they did the same thing and the rats would go across this electrified panel to get the their drug water and they would be popping up they would be jumping up and down sparks flying smoke their fur burning they and they would keep going over onto this electrified part to try and get a sip of this drug water until they would they would fry themselves and so the the end result was is that this is how powerful a high is to human behavior it, it, it overrides every natural instinct and pain tolerance that an animal can have that's how strong it is and so there was this big fear of, of drugs taking over every human in, in the world. And, um, but interestingly enough in the seventies, they came up with this, I don't know, it must've been from Berkeley or something, some outside of the box, normal study of rats. And they had these, um, they created what they called the rat park where it wasn't just a cage. It was a whole room, like a half of a lab room that they made into this veritable maze with, little hiding places for the rats where they could, you know, that you couldn't see them a little wheels. They could get on and exercise um, local areas where they could interact food. 
and they would hide food and so that they would the rats could have to go find it. And what they found was is that when they presented the drug water to these rats that they rarely took it. Now they would every once in a while and they would get high, but it, they didn't ever get addicted to the to the drug water, which was, you know, uniquely interesting. And they're like, oh, well, environment has a lot to do with the um, with the health or the, the the habituation of drugs. And you could might even say the the sociology of of the rats has a lot to do with it. Well, then they took the already addicted. These are the the shockified, starving, drug you know crazed, <laughs> drug crazed rats, and they threw them in the rat park. Well, oddly enough, they got unaddicted. Given the opportunity to to take part in normal activities of life, healthy, functional, you might call them of rat life, they, um, stopped, you know, killing themselves with drugs. Now they, they continue to use more than the other ones, but they, it wasn't, they didn't, their behavior wasn't the same. It wasn't compulsive. And so what they, you know, this all brought up a whole thing and it was, you know, you know, you know, knew it happened in the seventies where, you know, you're fine. I'm fine. We're all fine. We just got to love each other, drink a Coke type of thing. And, um, so, but it was real. This is this concept of, if you change the environment and you make it healthy, then people's compulsive behaviors are, you know, likely to to change when they're when they're dis- dis- dysfunctional or destructive. And so, this uh, goes back a little bit to the 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 concept within the clinical idea that a habit loop cannot be stopped because once you have a trigger and a routine for a reward, you just have to replace the routine with something else so that you can like you, the, the ship, the ship's moving or the train's moving. You just have to direct it um, towards something that's functional versus dysfunctional. And I even remembered thinking like, I don't know about that. That seems, I don't know. Maybe I just was a, a hopeful person in uh, my early twenties. <laughs> And I was like, I just don't know that that's true. Well, I do remember there was an interview with Tommy Lee, and Tommy Lee was the the drummer for Motley Crue, the, you know, their rockers back in the '80s, and then he was famous in the '90s for marrying Pamela Anderson, and you know these these tapes that leaked out, and they were as, there was this interview, and the the guy was asking about his tattoos and his drug use of back when he was touring and. And uh, Tommy Lee was like, yeah, you know, I, I use drugs, but I, I recognized pretty early on that those who hit the hard stuff, they ended up falling apart pretty, pretty quickly. And so I would avoid that. Now he said he would still binge drink and smoke all the time, but the, eventually he did get married and he said that that didn't change anything about his life. But then when um, his daughter was born, his firstborn, he went and he saw her and he looked in her eyes and instantly he, he something snapped inside of him. He said he never smoked again. And he was like a one or two pack a day or kind of guy. So he had a feedback loop that was, you know, well entrenched for, you know, years and years and years and years and years of, of smoking. And it stopped and he never smoked again. And there was something about that where he looked in his daughter's eyes where he like looked into her future. This is him getting drawn into the meta narrative, if you will. And he saw her dreams and the future. 
And when he saw himself, it was it was not good. Like it was sick or he wasn't there. And that that changed it. Now I don't know, maybe he replaced all his smoking with chewing gum. I'm not sure. But it was this concept of something that was bigger than him sucked him into um, a reality where the compulsion to do something changed. And this goes along with a lot of the research. If you look at common denominators of, of things that affect people's lives, now you can remove somebody from an environment and you can change their habit loop, but you allow them to go back into their environment, then they just return to the, you know, the, the you turn to the vomit, if you will. And, um, but they found that religious conversion is one of those things that has um, the highest incidence of adherence from um, lifestyle change. And that makes sense. Now, I'll, I'll make this point out. If you were already religious and then you got addicted, being religious didn't seem to have much of an effect on getting unaddicted. But if you had a conversion while addicted, then it had a huge effect. And from, let's say, a Christian point of view, it makes perfect sense, right? That uh, being born again, you're dying to your old nature, your old self, everything that you ever wanted, your purpose in life, what you, what's right and wrong, what uh, your identity is. Those all shift in an instant. And now um, everything about your life has changed. So it's almost like your environment changed from within, if you will, because like you could take somebody out of their environment and suddenly their habit loops all change. They're all disrupted. And then, but if you put them back, they go back. Well, if you change their environment from within, then everything changes and they never go back. And that, you know, obviously that's theoretically not that somebody couldn't, I suppose, but um, this is kind of one of those concepts of, um, the meta narrative being sucked in as in a dream, you're pulled into something else and then your compulsions can change and, and, and it's not intentional. It's pretty interesting. So think about, think about this and I'll try and wrap this up. Your identity is part of the dream, but your concept of your identity is your reality. So a tree will reproduce after its own kind. As as long as it has food, water, sunlight, right? It'll it'll grow and reproduce. As long as, you know, it's not crushed. Well, same way that um, you're, if if you're just given a normal environment, a healthy healthy environment, then um, does the, does this, pursuit that you're after, does it just naturally manifest? So again, like I say, you have a goal of change. I want to achieve this. And if I am not, if I'm given the, the, the environment that I need to be successful and I've not been crushed or wounded, which, you know, obviously that's a, it's a whole different topic. Then I will, this naturally come about and does my identity match up with my end goal? Does the fruition of my, of my identity match up with this end goal? And that's the big thing that we try to, or I try to establish with my clients is that if they, if I could tell that this is truly their passion, I'm like, look, you know, you were born to be healthy. 
you were you were born to be functional you were born to be beautiful and you achieving this goal is all part of you manifesting it's not outside of yourself you don't need to whip yourself into shape and that's the big context contextual change that we're trying to bring about by anchors freaks and dreams is that this is this is um this is you this is the real you and this is finding the real you now again um this is the whole concept of dreams is super complex in general but i would go back to like martin luther king jr i have a dream and the issue with him having a dream is that just like in the the story of braveheart he's he gets pulled into this progressively throughout his life where it it takes over his life and he ends up um ultimately he really did end up giving his life for this cause and I would say that if you feel if you can get up in the morning and waste yourself on something, then that you found it. And it doesn't mean that you enjoy the process necessarily, but it's you feel like a soldier in wartime wakes up in the morning and says, it's it's time to die. And if I do, then I have fulfilled my calling. And that's the way soldiers think. That this I'm I'm dying for something a cause greater than myself a country or an ideology or some something of that nature, and I you know I think this is a question that I have for you guys that within the dream most of the things that I'm bringing up are things where um, you're picking up your cross if you will they're a sacrifice but they're part of the the intense satisfaction which you can't manufacture that you you they choose you but what role what aspect does joy play does happiness does pleasure play in the dream and that would be the question that i have for you all right guys thanks for joining me on this episode of anchors freaks and dreams hope you enjoyed it if you did then i will catch you on the next one